This daily devotional is brought to you by Hope PR Ministry. We would love to hear from our listeners, and we ask that you would contact us at hoperwc at gmail.com with any feedback or questions you might have. We hope that you are edified by this content. The following podcast is part three of four of Professor Hanko's series, The Doctrine of Holy Scripture. Tonight's uh, speech is going to be of a much more practical nature. I have chosen for the topic of this speech in conjunction with the Evangelism Committee the importance of Scripture. But I do not want to limit myself strictly to that topic and I want to use the opportunity we have tonight to discuss with you how we ought to approach Scripture, how we ought to make the Scriptures the object of our study, and how the Scriptures can be of value to us. I hope that you are impressed with the importance of Scripture. Peter, in his second epistle, chapter 1, in a passage we looked at in the first speech, calls the Scriptures a light shining in a dark place. He says that that light which shines in a dark place is the light which God gave to us until the day dawn and the day star arise in our hearts. It is, in other words, a light shining in a dark place as long as we are in the world. When we are in heaven, the scriptures will be laid aside. We won't need them any longer. And we won't need them because in heaven we will see Christ face to face. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13 in the great chapter on love, the scriptures now serve as a mirror. We see Christ through a glass darkly, the apostle says. But in glory we will see him face to face and the need for the mirror of the scriptures will be gone. But for the present, the scriptures themselves, to which Peter is directly referring, are a light that shines in a dark place. Peter means by that, that apart from the scriptures, in this world of darkness, there would be no light at all. It would be all dark. It would be only dark. Darkness is the lie. And darkness is moral, spiritual corruption. There would be no hope. There would be nothing to counteract the lie. Think of that for a moment. If it were not for the sacred scriptures, which we possess and which frequently we take so much for granted, there would be no church. There never would have been a church in all the history of the world. There never would have been one child of God to counteract the terrible forces of darkness 
that prevailed in the creation from the moment of the fall. There would be no witness to the truth of God. A terrible silence would hold sway over the entire creation. There would be no power to counteract and overcome the evil plots of Satan. He would have his way in every respect. He would be able to do as he pleases. All would be under his dominion and under his control. He would dominate totally and completely in the midst of God's world. Because all that would be true, it would seem as if the cause of God, and indeed there is truth to that, the cause of God, which is the cause of truth and righteousness and holiness, would be non-existent in God's own creation. And God's purpose in the creation would go down to crushing defeat. What makes all the difference? Why is there a light in the world? Why are there people who confess the name of God, who represent the cause of Christ? Why is it that there is a church from the beginning to the end of time? Why is it that Satan is in his deepest heart convinced that he suffers such defeat as will crush him and all his supporters forever and ever in the blackness of hell? The answer is one word, the Bible. That's what makes all the difference. You need only ponder that and you need only think briefly about that in order to understand what the importance of the Bible is. As we take a look at this subject together tonight, I want first of all to talk about the power of the Holy Scriptures. Secondly, how to approach the Holy Scriptures. And then thirdly, what importance they have in our lives. It must have been now at least 55 years ago, probably in either the spring or the fall of 1948. I was either in my last year of high school or my first year of college. I think it was the autumn, because if I remember correctly, Dr. Skilder, Dr. Klaus Skilder, was in our country in the autumn of 1948. At any rate, there was a meeting on an autumn day in the home of Reverend George Lubbers. At that time, he was pastor of our old Crescent Protestant Reformed Church on Leonard Street on the, on the northeast end of town. He had a parsonage near to the church. There was a meeting in his living room of all the ministers of the area and of Dr. Skilder. Reverend Huxma was there, Reverend Opoff was there, and the ministers who lived in this area were there. Perhaps even some came from Illinois, I don't recall. 
There must have been some pre-seminary students there too, because I was there and I was in no respect privileged. But I don't remember that either, it's too long ago. I do remember that the living room was crowded with men and thick with smoke. Dr. Skilder sat across the room from me and I could barely make out his features. So smoky was the living room. The discussion at that meeting in Reverend Lubber's living room was heavily theological and much of it was over my head. Somehow or another, however, the discussion turned to scripture. I don't have any recollection at all why the subject of scripture was brought up. I don't even have any recollection anymore what was discussed concerning the doctrine of scripture, but I have one vivid memory, so vivid, that it has remained unchanged and almost as if it happened yesterday until the present. In the course of the discussion, Reverend Hooksma made this remark. The Bible, and this is a quote, the words were indelibly burned on my memory. The Bible as a book is a dead book. Silence fell on the room, except for the fact that Dr. Skilder just about fell out of his chair, flat on his face on the floor. He was astounded. He was angry. He was in total disagreement with that statement. And the discussion from there on got quite hot. Just as hot as it would have been if the doctrine of the covenant had been up for discussion. I have no idea what the outcome of that discussion was. Looking back over a period of some 50 odd years, I'm quite sure that Reverend Hooks meant by that statement two things. He meant by that statement, first of all, that we must not have a kind of a Roman Catholic sacramental view of the Bible. We must not look at the Bible as possessing within itself, between its covers, some kind of mysterious hidden power or grace which will flow from the pages of the Bible into the one who picks it up and opens it. There is nothing in the book itself which would, in any respect of the word, convey life and blessing as a book. Looking back, I think he meant in the second place, and I'm sure this was prominent in his own mind at the time he made this rather astounding statement, that the preaching of the word is itself the power of God unto salvation. 
The power does not rest in a book, but the power rests in the preaching of the book. If you would consult Reverend Hooksma's Reformed Dogmatics in the section on ecclesiology and the preaching of the gospel, you would discover that he emphasized that very strongly, basing his argumentation on Romans 10. If you read his exposition of the Heidelberg Catechism and the chapter on Lord's Day 25, where he talks about the means of faith, you will find much the same thing. The preaching, the preaching by the official ministry in the established church is, to use Paul's words in Romans 1.16, the power of God unto salvation. Nevertheless, although at the time I was captivated by the thought, and although for many, many years that idea gripped me strongly, there were passages in Scripture, important passages, which speak about the Scriptures themselves and which speak of a power which the Scriptures have as the written Word of God. Those passages puzzled me and I had a difficult time putting them into the context of Reverend Hooksima's statement, the Bible as a book is dead. I'd like to take a look at some of those passages with you because I have come to the conclusion that although I agree completely with Reverend Hooksima's emphasis on the primacy of preaching, I nevertheless find in Scripture passages which ascribe power to the book, the written book. One of those passages is a passage which we already looked at in connection with Scripture's inspiration. I refer to 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 and 16, and 17 for that matter. Paul is talking about the fact that Timothy, from a child, knew the Holy Scriptures. That is, this book, the written Word of God. He says of those Holy Scriptures in verse 15, that they, the written Scriptures, this book which you and I are now holding, is able to make the wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That's ascribing to the written word of God a tremendous power. The book is able to make wise unto salvation. He goes on to say, the reason for this is, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, 
truly furnished unto all good works. The Bible, the written word, this book has the power to make us perfect. Truly furnished unto all good works. That's a tremendous power. I call your attention to Psalm 19, which Mr. Buter read. Psalm 19 is an extremely interesting psalm. I must admit that for a long time, Psalm 19 puzzled me. The first part of that psalm, verses 1 through 6, describes the Word of God in creation. The Word of God by which the creation was formed, and the Word of God which upholds the creation and continues to give it its life and existence and rules in the creation in such a way that all that happens in the creation is explainable in terms of the Word of God. Suddenly, in verse 7, the psalmist turns to the law of God. He doesn't mean the law of the Ten Commandments, of course. He means the whole of the scriptures which the church possessed at that time. The whole of the Old Testament scriptures later on. And what Jesus called the law and the prophets. All the scriptures are sometimes called the law of God. Suddenly scripture talks here in Psalm 19 about the word of God in this book. Now, that's not exactly pertinent to our subject tonight, but the unity between the first part of the psalm and the second part of the psalm is this. Both speak of the word of God. One, the word of God in creation, one, the word of God in the scriptures. And, and this is worth thinking about, and I commend it to you for your thoughtful meditation. Fundamentally, because the word of God is used in both senses, in one psalm, the scriptures mean to say here in Psalm 19 that the word of God in creation is fundamentally the same as the word of God in scripture. There is no difference, fundamentally. That is, the word of God in the creation, by which the creation was formed, and by which power the creation is governed, is also Christ, who is the word of God in the scriptures. That's Psalm 19. But now notice what the psalmist says about that the importance, the power he ascribes to the law of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. Performing the work of conversion, which is, of course, the beginning of salvation. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
that's a greater power than any teacher or any preacher has. The written word of God makes wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. They can give joy in the midst of sorrow where nothing else can. The law of God can do that. The word, the book that we call sacred scripture. The commandments of the Lord, the commandment in the singular of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. That is creating in man the spiritual ability to understand the word of God. What tremendous things, powers, are ascribed to this book. Same thing is true of Psalm 119. Almost through the same psalm you have that. But listen to what, for example, Psalm 119 says in verses 97 and following. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Why does the psalmist love that law so much? This is why. Thou through thy commandments hast made me wiser than mine enemies. Imagine that. For they are ever with me. I have more understanding, and that is because I have thy law, the scriptures, I have more understanding than all my teachers. I know more than my professor in the university and my teachers in school when I know the law of God. For thy testimonies are for... They are ever with me. I have, oh, okay, 99. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, that is, the wise men, the wisest men of bygone years. I understand more than they do. Why? Simply because of the fact that I have the scriptures. That's all. So you see how throughout the Word of God ascribes a power to the book itself. Now, I want to say just a word or two about that because I think we ought to understand that. We must not conclude from these passages in Scripture that the Word of God can be divorced from or even have its power independent from the preaching. There's an old Dutch expression that goes like this, no man may sit met in in an hookje. And by that rather strange expression, the Dutch meant to say that it is wrong for a person 
to refuse to attend the worship services because he sat at home in a corner in his rocking chair and read the scriptures. People used to do that. What do we need the preaching for? I can be better blessed if I just read the scriptures by myself. And especially when when the preaching got rather poor in the state church in the Netherlands, and even sometimes downright heretical, then the people would say, we could just as well stay home and study the Bible. We don't need the preaching. That's wrong. In other words, it is true that the preaching is the primary, fundamentally decisive means of grace. Romans 10 makes that clear. I'm not going to talk about that tonight. You're all acquainted with that, I think, and and understand the importance of that. Lord's Day 25 says, how does God work faith? And the answer is, he works faith through the preaching. That's how he does it. And confirms that faith by the sacraments. So we may not give a power to the Bible that is independent of the preaching. I want to come back to that, but that needs underscoring. We may not ever expect a blessing from the scriptures if we separate ourselves from the church. That's a sin that will close the scriptures to us in all our private study. And the fundamental reason for that is that the preaching and the work of God is decisive. But in organic connection with the preaching, the Bible as a book has a power that is great and wonderful because it is the written, infallibly inspired Word of God. The second remark that needs to be made as, uh, in connection with what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, the Bible has a power in the lives of the people of God only through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Faith. There is the decisive and determinative word. And I'm going to spend most of the rest of tonight talking about what that means. The scriptures are able to make wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, the scriptures have no power apart from faith. And then we must remember what Lord's Day 25 says, how his faith worked through the preaching. But when faith is worked through the preaching, the scriptures through faith in Christ Jesus are able to make wise. 
That means that the scriptures do not have that mysterious power of which the scriptures themselves speak in and by themselves as a book which comes off the printing press and is bound by a skilled bookbinder and distributed in the millions of copies in Christian bookstores. An unbeliever may pick up this Bible, and an unbeliever may read this Bible, and as is the case in many universities in this country, holy secular universities, the Bible is even taught as a piece of literature, but for the unbeliever, there is no power in the Bible at all. Now I make that statement, I should, as soon as I make it, take it back. Because even for an unbeliever, the Bible has a certain power. And that power which the Bible has, even for an unbeliever, is this first of all. It is impossible for an unbeliever to read the Bible and to become acquainted with anything in it without being, by that reading of the Bible, confronted with Christ. Every time he turns a page in the Bible, I don't care why he reads it, Maybe he's reading it to find ammunition against it. Maybe he's reading, to, reading it the better to mock the people of God who put their trust in it. Whatever. Every time he reads it, he cannot help but be confronted with the demand of Christ. What are you going to do with Christ? That's implicit in the Bible. In that sense of the word, the Bible is a power even to the unbeliever. And mind you, because the Bible has that power for an unbeliever, the Bible also has the power through the work of God to harden the unbeliever in his sin. No man can read the Bible and walk away from it the same kind of person. He's been changed. He's been changed for the worse. His hatred of the Bible, his hatred of God, his hatred of things holy has been increased by his acquaintance with the scriptures. That's a given fact. From that point of view, there is a certain sense of the word in which it is dangerous business to read scripture, for you and me too. You can't read scripture as a history book. That's impossible. It does something to you. You can't lay it aside if you are bored by it and say, this book has had no effect on me at all. You can't do that. It never happened. The scriptures are a dangerous book to read. 
if they are not read and understood by faith in Jesus Christ. That means that the power of the Word of God is a power to those who believe. That means that the way we must come to Scripture is the way of faith. The Scriptures have as their central unifying doctrine the revelation of Jehovah God who saves His church through His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, the everlasting glory of his own name. The one who reads the scriptures and comes to the scriptures with faith sees Christ. That faith is a living faith, a saving faith, not the kind of faith which is sometimes defined as being nothing else but the acceptance of some unprovable facts. I recall when I was going to grade school, not a Protestant reform school, of course, there were no Protestant reform schools in those days. Teacher was talking about faith once. Saving faith, I presume. And the teacher said, saving faith is this, that if you write a letter and put a stamp on it and put an address on it and drop it in the mailbox, you have faith that it's going to arrive at the home of the person to whom you send it. It's out of sight. You don't see it from there on. You don't know what happens to it. You have faith that it will get to the person to whom you sent it. That isn't faith. Dr. John DeVries, who introduced the period theory into the Christian Reformed Church, said that faith was common to believers and unbelievers because the faith of a believer is that he simply accepts things which cannot be proved, such as, for example, that God is. But the unbeliever does the same thing. He accepts things which cannot be proved. And so both the believer and the unbeliever accept the religion which is their creed on the basis of faith because both rest their creed on assumptions which are beyond proof and which are to be accepted only by faith. That isn't faith either. That stirring, altogether marvelous but disturbing definition of faith in Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism is the dominating definition. Faith is the bond that unites us to Christ and makes us one with Him in a living union so that we become His body. When, therefore, we come to the Scriptures in faith, that means that we believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God because they are inspired by the Holy Spirit, but because 
They are the written record of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, and they are an altogether unique book with a power that no other book on the face of the earth has. Faith in this book brings me to faith in Christ in the deepest and most profound and saving sense of the word. That's a miracle. I can't explain that. When I began to take plane geometry in the ninth or 10th grade, I forget which, what it, which it was, 10th grade, I guess. Then the teacher was at great pains to explain to us that this was Euclidean geometry. Euclid, the old Greek mathematician, had developed this geometry. And she raved for a better part of a half an hour about the mathematical genius of Euclid. Well, it was tough going for me. And I never learned to appreciate the mathematical genius of this man. But the point I'm trying to make now is simply this. That by reading and studying and sweating over and torturing myself to try to master simple Euclidean geometry, I never got to know Euclid. How is that possible? I've read and enjoyed and even profited in some respects from Bruce Catton's biography of Abraham Lincoln. I got to know a lot about him. Got to know, for example, that although he spoke repeatedly of God and re reliance upon divine providence and used religious language, he never went to church. He never mentioned the name of Christ. But apart from all of that, whatever I may have learned about Abraham Lincoln, I never got to know Abraham Lincoln. He's dead, he's in the grave. No one can make him my acquaintance. But the Bible is different. When we read the Bible, with faith that brings us to Christ, the living, exalted Christ himself. I can't explain that, I say. That's the power of faith. When I know the Bible, I know Christ. And the better I know the Bible, the better I know Christ. I know him personally. I know him because I meet him as a person on the pages of Scripture. Nowhere else. But here, on the pages of Scripture. That's why Jesus says to Thomas, who had to have proof of Jesus' resurrection, I have to see the holes in his hands. I have to shove my fist into the hole in his side. Then I'll believe. And so Jesus appeared to him and said, Go ahead, Thomas. Put your finger in the holes of my hands. And don't be faithless, but believe. What was Thomas' response? My Lord and my God. That was his response. To which Jesus responded, 
Because thou hast seen me, Thomas, thou hast believed. But blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. Because they too, though they see through a glass darkly, nevertheless say, when they are confronted with me in the scriptures, my Lord and my God. That's the power of the Word of God when we come to it in faith. Now I want to talk a little bit about what is further implied in that. That is, coming to the Scriptures in faith means a particular way of studying the Scriptures. And my purpose in doing all of this is to try to impress upon your hearts and your minds the importance of spending time with the Scriptures. In our day, we don't have any time for that. I would not dare to take a poll of any given congregation in our Protestant Reformed denomination that is similar to the polls that are taken by polling agencies who determine the size of the audience of TV programs. What programs do you watch? How long do you watch it? And you have to write down the times and the name of the program and so on and so forth. If we would conduct a poll like that in any given congregation in our Protestant Reformed churches, write down or have someone else unbeknownst to you write down the times on every given day that you are busy with the Word of God. It would be embarrassing to the extreme. There were, there would be, I am sure, blank pages in the book where a whole day went by and we never opened the Bible. There would be many days where the only entry would be we read the Bible at supper time in our family devotions. We spent three minutes dashing through this chapter of 13 verses. That was the extent of it. And yet heaven keeps a record of these things. And we talk about how important the Bible is in our lives. It is the light shining in a dark place, Peter says. The only light we have. And yet it means so little to us. We know so little about it. We spend so little time with it. We're so busy. So many other things occupy our time and our attention. We're so tired at night. After a hard day's work, we fall asleep over the Bible. Father goes to work early in the morning. He can't get the children up that early in the morning to sit down and have devotions together as a family. Children need their sleep. My father tells me that he and his siblings were hauled out of bed at quarter after five in the morning. 
because the father had to be to work at six o'clock and he insisted that all the children be there at the breakfast table so that the whole family could have devotions. But not today. Even if the father has to be to work at seven or 7.30, we can't get the children that quickly out of bed that we can have devotions in the morning before the day begins. And so it goes. You all know, I don't have to describe what is common practice among us now, I mean. And it isn't my purpose tonight to, to reprimand you in any way for these poor practices among us. Our own consciences testify of how weak and frail we are in this regard. I want to take the time available to me to give you some direction in what ought to be the nature of our own study of the Word of God. That it ought to occupy a central place in our life goes without saying. That it ought to be the, the object of our study and meditation is axiomatic in the Christian life. If we really mean what we say when we sing Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light upon my pathway we would not dare to take one step in the darkness of this night of sin and death without the light of the Word of God shining upon our feet. How do we come to the Scriptures? To come to the Scriptures in faith means that we come to the Scriptures not verse by verse pulled out of context, here a verse and there a verse, without any regard to the nature of Scripture itself. I don't know if you appreciate what I'm, I'm saying. Luther made the insightful comment when he was talking about how the believer must study the Word that if he isn't careful and if he doesn't come to Scripture in the right way, he can make the Bible prove anything he wants it to teach. And again, the Dutch, who were so aware of this, understood exactly what this was all about. And they had their Dutch expression, probably with which you are familiar. Elk, ketter, heefs, and letter. Every heretic has his text. There is no coming to Scripture in its entirety as the written record of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. It's as if they have a beautiful portrait of someone whom they love dearly on the wall but when they get around to looking at the portrait and studying it in its exquisite painting, they concentrate maybe on a mole on the cheek and never see the eyes or the nose because they're so intent 
on studying just one little part of the portrait that they never come to see the whole. You can go to Scripture that way too. If Scripture is in the figure I used last week, the portrait that God paints of Jesus Christ, it's absurd to study his cleft chin in the portrait and pay no attention to the blazing fury of his eyes when he looks at the sins of which we are guilty. This is how heretics operate. The Baptists to the extreme. Why don't we baptize infants? There is no command in the New Testament that we should baptize infants. All right, what about the whole of Scripture? What about the Old Testament? There you find it. Oh yes, but the Old Testament is for Israel. We're only going to look at half the portrait. And this particular half of which we are, at which we are willing to look doesn't happen to, to reveal in itself what we're looking for. Why does the Arminian first shot out of the box always quote John 3.16? Well, he pays absolutely no attention to Romans 9 and John 12 and 1 Peter 2. That was what Luther was talking about. I had a Bible teacher in high school. He drilled this into our heads. He was a good Bible teacher. Don't ever come to Scripture that way. He says, if you come to Scripture that way, I can, and I come to Scripture that way, we can sit here together and prove that it's your calling to commit suicide. He says, listen, I'll quote you three texts. And Judas went and hanged himself. Go and do thou likewise, and what thou doest, do quickly. That's what the Dutch meant when they say, said, every heretic has his text. Scripture isn't meant to be treated that way. That's why it's so difficult to argue with a Baptist. They're hopping all over the Scriptures, from one end of the Scriptures to another. You can't even keep up with them. You say to them, hold on, let's take a look at this text. Let's study it carefully in the light of other passages of the Word of God. But they don't even hear you. They're off onto another text and sailing away on the seas of that text before you ever get around to looking at this one. Scripture isn't to be treated that way. And if you do treat it that way, you're going to make a mishmash of it all because you will only see just a little corner of the glorious portrait of Jesus Christ painted on the pages of Holy Writ. But now that means if we come to Scripture as a whole, that we follow in our interpretation of Scripture and study of Scripture that most basic and fundamental rule, Scripture interpret Scripture. What does it mean that Scripture interprets Scripture? It means, first of all, and fundamentally, that because the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, He's the only one who can interpret it. And if you want to understand what the Scriptures mean, and you want to come to them to study them that you may know Christ, then the first thing you better do 
is get down on your knees and pray, Lord, give me thy spirit without whose work in my heart I cannot in the feebleness of my mind and the darkness of my understanding read thy word with profit. A total reliance on the spirit. If a minister is wrestling with a text in his study, he'd better spend time in prayer. The scripture will not open automatically to him if he relies on his own exegetical skills and his own past education in the word of God. The spirit interprets his own writings and is the only one who can do it. But the spirit interprets his own writings with his writings. That's what it means, that Scripture interprets Scripture. And now I come, I come to a point that is, to my mind, fundamental, which is closely related to this, but goes back to what I said a little while ago, that no man can understand the Scriptures apart from the church, but the only way to understand the scriptures is to come to the scriptures with the confessions. I find it incredible and beyond belief that in Reformed churches, Protestant Reformed churches, we have to argue about that. The only way a Reformed man comes to the Word of God is with the confessions. And all the work of the church, in all her preaching of the gospel, and in all her defense of the faith, and in all her trial of those who seek to import false doctrine into the church, come, first of all, with the creeds. They go to Scripture via the creeds. That's reformed. Why? Well, simply because here in the three forms of unity you have what the church since the time of Nicaea, 325 A.D., said was the truth of the Word of God. As that church was guided in searching the Scriptures by the Spirit of truth whom Christ promised, to give to the church that that spirit might lead the church into all truth. And I may not, under any circumstances, separate myself from that church, not from the whole company of the redeemed that goes all the way back to Pentecost. If I do, I'm a fool, a conceited fool at that. Because here I stand, a pipsqueak of a theologian, the heir of the study and fruit of theological giants, raised up by God, guided by the Spirit, searching the Scriptures, and writing down under the impulse of the Spirit what the Scriptures teach. Not here and there in one text. When they're talking about the atonement here, they don't talk about John 
They talk about what does the Bible from Genesis 1 verse 1 to the last part of Revelation 22 teach concerning the suffering and death of the Son of God. What does the whole of the Bible teach? Here it is. In other words, if I am to go to Scripture as a whole, instead of just nitpicking at little texts here and there, I'm never going to come to an understanding of it. But if I do my work and my study and my meditation in closest unity with the church of all ages, then I reverence the confessions, always comparing them with Scripture because Scripture is the final authority. But here, here is what the Spirit has said to the church for 2,000 years concerning the truth of God in its entirety. Now that means for the individual believer, and I can't underscore this enough, that he has got to make himself acquainted with the Reformed confessions if he is serious about his Bible study. I understand that some of our people in their devotions read the confessions and discuss the confessions in their family devotions. It's a marvelous idea. My wife and I have done it in our devotions in the evening before we retire for the night. We've gone through the confessions, discussed them, written down extensive notes on them, asked ourselves the question, is this the doctrine of Scripture? Not an isolated text here and there, but the whole of the Word of God, which is the portrait of Jesus Christ, was eminently profitable and helps us to understand the Scriptures more clearly. We tie ourselves to the confessions, then we're safe. You know, every one of us, some more than others, but every one of us who is serious about studying the Scriptures is a theological renegade. And if we were all on our own and divorced ourselves from the church, whether the church of the past or the church today in the preaching, every last one of us would go off running in his every crazy direction with every cockeyed idea of Scripture, thinking that we are, in our own right, theologians, that we have a corner of the truth, and that it is for us as individuals to determine what the Scriptures teach. I had a letter not so long ago yet from a man. I have no idea who he was. He had his own interpretation of a passage in Peter about Christ in the Spirit going to the spirits in prison. I don't have time for that sort of a thing. I scanned it and I didn't even read it and I didn't answer him because he had set himself up as an individual theologian. He had set himself apart from the church. 
He had studied the text all on his own. He had thrown all his commentaries aside. He hadn't consulted the confessions, but he had, a, he had light. And he wanted to share his light with me. I wasn't interested in that light. You know, even, even in the seminary, for me, and I hope for the other professors, the theological give and take with the students and with the professors was absolutely necessary. If we did not have that check upon each other, if we did not have the opportunity to talk with our colleagues about various doctrines and interpretation of passages so that they could check us and challenge us and show us where we're going off in a wrong direction, every one of us would be a theological renegade. We need the church. If we are to understand the scriptures, we need each other. Even in the communion of the saints, part of the communion of the saints is that in Bible studies and societies, the saints together can discuss the word of God. It doesn't hurt in a society if you have a clash of ideas. It doesn't hurt if you challenge each other. It doesn't hurt if you try out new thoughts, as long as all together are willing to bow before the word of God, we need each other. I sometimes used to say to my wife when I led Ladies' Aid, that's a long time ago, I think I learned more in Ladies' Aid than the ladies do, because ladies have a way of thinking that is so mysterious to me that it takes me a couple hours to figure out where they're coming from. And when I discover where they're coming from, I discover, to my surprise as well, that they've got ideas about certain passages of Scripture that I would never have thought of. That's when Bible study becomes enriching, becomes a vibrant part of the communion of the saints. Before I go on, we're going to pause for a moment and, and stretch our legs. We have to meet so-and-so in ten minutes. There's no time, it seems. And yet, in the life of a covenant family, family devotions are supremely important. So important that we ought to give special heed to them. I do not consider family devotions to be of any significant value if the father mumbles his way through 15 or 20 verses and prays the Lord's Prayer and everyone scatters to the winds. Family devotions are quite different from that. They're not the mere formality of reading quickly passage from the Scriptures. The key of family devotions is that family devotions become spiritual exercises for the whole family together, parents and children. 
I want to make some suggestions which I consider to be fundamental for successful and meaningful and significant family devotions. In the first place, they have to begin in a couple's life as soon as they marry. They ought to be a regular part of mealtime from day one. You understand, as a parenthesis to all of this, that it is impossible to have family devotions in a restaurant. And the more in our affluent age we eat out, the more family devotions suffer. In the second place, the children must be impressed with the fact from childhood on, not only that family devotions are decent, but that they are vital for the well-being of a covenant family. And because they are vital, the whole family participates. The children, too. The father is the prophet and priest and king. He takes the lead. They ought never to read a passage from the Bible without explaining it to his children or to his wife. There ought to be opportunity after such an explanation to discuss it so that the children and others have opportunity to ask questions if there is something that they do not understand. There ought to be a family communal discussion of the Word of God. And that communal family discussion of the Word of God ought to be done in such a way that the children are left with the unmistakable understanding that this is God's way through Christ of speaking to us and our way of speaking to God as a response to his speech so that Devotions become the pulse beat of the covenant life of a covenant family. Some parents are more capable of explaining the scriptures than others. A few simple helps will enable anyone to do it. For one thing, you ought to have a shelf somewhere near at hand where you have your devotions on which you have some books. Among those books should be a good Bible dictionary which will serve you in good stead to identify all the strange names that are brought up in the scriptures Names of people, names of places, names of nations, and all the rest. You don't need an expensive one. This is the one we use. 
250, Zondervan Bookstore. It really tells us all we want to know. But in addition to that, my wife and I both have a reference Bible with a Bible dictionary in it, which we frequently use. Every shelf ought to contain a set of commentaries to consult where the meaning is simply beyond us. And I recommend, as I always do, the very best set of commentaries you can own is Calvin. I have five shelves full of commentaries. I never look at them anymore, not even when I make a sermon. They don't help, except Calvin. I wouldn't dare to go to the pulpit with a sermon without consulting Calvin. And he always helps. I don't know if they're available new. Seems like bookstores don't want to print Calvin's commentaries anymore. But you can get them. And if you're absolutely desperate, and you can't find Calvin anywhere, and you promise to use it, I'll give you my set. I can always go to the Sem and use theirs. That's essential. I understand Reverend Key said in a sermon in Hudsonville this past Sunday, Song of Solomon is the most difficult book in the Bible. Maybe it is, I don't know. I think Ezekiel is the most difficult. We have waded our way through Ezekiel again and again. I have no idea what significant and important parts of Ezekiel mean. Nevertheless, in general, to come to Scripture, we ought not to be afraid to use other aids also for the help of the children. And using these other aids, we are simply confessing that we are part of the church and that there have been saints before us, now in glory, who have struggled with these same passages and who can help us in our understanding of difficult texts. My point is, as you can see, we have to spend some time with the Word of God, with our families. I would rather that you read three verses and that when the devotions are over, the children know what those three verses mean, rather than that you read 50 verses. And that at the end of the devotions, after some chit-chat and conversation, someone at the table says, as happens sometimes, did we read the Bible yet or not? Oh, let's see, did we or didn't we? I can't remember whether we read it or not. Did we pray? Not sure. Do we have to pray yet or don't we? That doesn't mean anything. Those devotions are meaningless. If you approach the scriptures in that way, you must approach them too from this viewpoint, that the Spirit of Christ whom God gives to his people has promised to make the scriptures clear to us. Not every passage not always all the difficulties in Scripture, 
but every part of the portrait sufficiently well that on the pages of Scripture, when we meditate on the Word of God, we can say together as a family, this Christ of the Scriptures is our Lord and our God. Finally, in devotions, they must be carried on in such a way that parents and children alike are impressed unmistakably with Scripture's authority. This is what God says. He means what He says. It is not for us to come up with our ifs and ands and buts, our excuses, why the Word doesn't come to us at a given point with authority, to come to the Scriptures confessing that we belong to Christ means that we say with Samuel and we teach our children to say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And hearing does not mean I'll keep my ears open so that I know, Lord, what you are saying, but hearing means I will do what you say. I will confess what you reveal. Your word will be the rule of my faith. And if the way seems hard and the demands of Christ too much for us, then the same scriptures tell us there is no way too difficult for the power of grace in the hearts and lives of the people of God. God has not promised us a rose-strewn pathway beneath shining skies from here to glory. It's a difficult way, an arduous way. The way of an obedient servant is the way of faith who trusts that what God says is true, that God will care for him in the way of obedience. The way of faith is the one who lays hold on that word of God and says, I will obey my God, come what may, no matter what, if it requires of me my life. The Lord tells me if I would be his disciple, I will deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. That's the authority of Scripture. That has to be brought across to the children. Not abstract theology, there is no such thing, but powerful, potent, living and very blessed communion through Scripture with the Christ to whom we belong. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.